The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this series of episodes, we continue a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians using proper hermeneutical and exegetical principles. Our goal is to understand not only the details of what was going on at the time this book was written, but more importantly, to understand what it is saying to God's elect in the church today. Now the reason, as stated before, is that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, says that God's word, the Bible, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Again, this is because our presuppositional approach and our biblical worldview as God's saints is that God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality. 
Further, our assumption is that God has chosen to reveal himself and his attributes, his relationship to man, his plan of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and glorification via his Holy Spirit who breathes God's revelation into his word, the Bible. Now, thus far in this series, we learned via Acts 17 that Paul, Silas, and Timothy founded the church in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, approximately at 52 AD. After having entered the synagogue on several subsequent uh, Sabbaths and reasoning from the scriptures, many people received the gospel and the church was born. Almost immediately, a zealous section of the population there sought to take Paul, Silas, and Timothy captive and to incarcerate them for their preaching of the gospel in the area. Fortunately, the three were delivered from that, and shortly thereafter, Paul, Silas, and Timothy fled the location to avoid the mob and went on to uh, Athens, Berea, and finally to Corinth, where within a year, Paul heard of the ongoing uh, suffering, persecution, and tribulation which was going on in the Thessalonian church, and undertook to write the letter which we are now studying under the heading of 1 Thessalonians. In our last episode, we had uh, made our way to uh, chapter 3, verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Now, if you'll open your copy of God's Word, we can pick up where we left off in verse 4. There, for context, in verse 4, Paul is reminding the Thessalonian church that he had told them while he was there in advance to expect suffering, affliction, persecution, tribulation, and so forth, which that they would suffer. Paul had a certain level of assurance with regard to this because Christ himself had promised the disciples in John 16.33, quote, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But, be of good courage, I have overcome the world, unquote. You will also no doubt recall how we pointed out that this is such a different mindset with the early church and with true believers in that they expect persecution, tribulation as their lot in life, since our focus is that we are pilgrims en route to a heavenly home, and not people who wish to camp out in the world and become part of the world. Further, we pointed out that this is so distinctly different from the prosperity gospel, wherein we are told that by some means, whether it be by works, or by extra super spirituality, or by faith, or by giving, that we can receive our best life now. In any case, Paul had heard about this ongoing persecution, suffering, and tribulation. And here is reminding them that uh, they would endure this. This was part of their lot as Christians. And in verse 5, he says, So, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter somehow tempted you, and our toil had proven useless. 
Now this temptation to which Paul is referring is a situation and a mindset which was common then and is common now. The temptation he's referring to can either come from Satan, the world, or the flesh, or a combination thereof. In essence, the temptation is to listen to Satan, the flesh, or the world, and to look at the persecution and the suffering and the trials which we face, and to start feeling sorry for ourselves, believing that either God is not real, that we have lost our faith, that God has walked away from us, or that in fact we are not true Christians because we are suffering persecution, trials, and tribulation. The temptation is to look around us and to see other people and to perceive that those other people are having an easy time, that they are in fact not suffering persecution or trials or tribulation, and that therefore that their lives are blessed and ours are not. Therefore, we have done something wrong and our faith becomes weakened. But again, the proper perspective is to remind yourselves and go back to the original situation where Jesus says, we, the church, his outcalled ones, will suffer persecution, trials, and tribulations. This is part of the Christian walk because we are not citizens of this world. We are pilgrims looking for a better world. And while we are here, we will endure suffering, persecution, trial, and tribulations to one degree or another. So we should not lose faith if we are experiencing these things. The presence of these things, in fact, should encourage us to know that we are his elect, that we are his children, rather than the converse. And this is what Paul is trying to find out by sending Timothy back to the Thessalonians to see whether or not what they preached had taken hold and that they were moving forward and staying strong in the faith, or whether in fact the persecution, trials, tribulations were having such an effect that they were in fact losing faith, and that as a result, what Paul, Silas, and Timothy had preached, and all the things that they had endured, were for naught. In verse 6, But now Timothy has come to us from you, and given us the good news of your faith and love, and that you always think of us with affection, and long to see us just as we long to see you. So here, Paul has already sent Timothy. Timothy has then returned, having sent the letter to the Thessalonians, and Timothy is giving a report back to Paul and telling Paul that, in fact, his fears are unfounded, that the Thessalonian church is strong, that the Thessalonian church is staying faithful despite all of the persecutions, trials, and tribulations, and that the Thessalonian church is thinking of Paul, Silas, and Timothy and longing to be with them just as Paul, Silas, and Timothy are longing to be with the Thessalonian church. The two have this relationship with one another. Verse 7. So, in all our distress and affliction, 
we were reassured about you, brothers and sisters, through your faith. So make no mistake, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were undergoing their own affliction, persecution, trials, tribulation, imprisonment, beatings, and so forth. And it was reassuring to them to know that in the midst of that, that their work, that their fruits, that their efforts had not gone in vain with what they had done previously with the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonians were in fact staying strong, which was a tribute to what God was doing through the three. Verse 8, For now we are alive again, if you stand firm in the Lord. With regard to the word alive, it might be better to say revived. The three were revived again. Whatever they were going through at the time in terms of their persecution, their trials and their tribulation, hearing that the Thessalonian church was strong in the faith served to be a shot of adrenaline in their arm to keep going, to stay strong in spite of the persecution that they were uh, enduring themselves. And if the Thessalonians had in large part succumbed to a loss of faith, to demoralization, to disbanding as a church as a result of their persecution, their trials and affliction, then most, if not all, of what Paul and his companions had and were enduring would now be in vain. But because Timothy's report was one of strong and enduring faith on the part of the Thessalonians, then despite the circumstances of Paul and his companions, they were re-energized, emboldened, and thriving spiritually as a result of what God was doing. Verse 9, For how can we thank God enough for you, for all the joy we feel because of you before our God? This demonstrates the the true heart of a pastor, of a teacher, of an evangelist, in that when they see the fruit which is growing on the vine of what God is doing in the lives of those that they have, they have preached to, they have taught to, or they have evangelized, then as a result, we feel joy, we feel purpose, we feel alive because God is working in and through us to do his will. Verse 10, we pray earnestly night and day to see you in person and make up what may be lacking in your faith. So here Paul is saying that they are constantly praying that it would be God's will that they would have opportunity see the Thessalonians again in person at some point and to make up what would be lacking in their faith. In other words, to continue teaching them, to bring them to the next level, to a higher level of maturity in the faith, a higher level of sanctification. That again is the heart and desire of a pastor, of a teacher, of an evangelist, of anyone who is working with the body of Christ. Verse 11. Now, may God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Again, 
In these uh, up-and-coming verses, Paul is closing out this chapter here of his letter and again saying that it is his prayer that it would be God's sovereign will that God the Father and Christ would direct their way at some point back to the Thessalonians to do what was in their hearts as stated in verse 10. Verse 12, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we do for you. Again, this is the result of the gospel being preached correctly. This is the result of sanctification in the believer's life, is that we will, if God is moving, increase and abound in love for one another, just as Paul, Silas, and Timothy were abounding and increasing in love for the Thessalonians. It is a mutual agape love born of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Verse 13, so that your hearts are strengthened in holiness to be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So as we look at verses 9 through 13 in retrospect, we see clearly that Paul is, is closing out chapter 3 in this salutation. Each verse speaks for itself and really needs no special commentary. Each simply speaks of the genuine, sincere, spirit-wrought love which Paul and his companions had for fellow believers and especially for those whom they had brought into the faith. It might also be added that what we're seeing here is the true, genuine, sincere, spirit-wrought love which God works in the heart of true believers through his indwelling Holy Spirit, as stated before. When we see this, we know that we have a healthy church, we have a healthy body, we have a healthy believer. When we don't, we see that God needs to step in and chastise either the believer, the body, or church. It might also be added that this is a perfect template to look for whenever we evaluate a healthy believer or a healthy church. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us about how you must live and please God as you are in fact living, that you do so more and more. So the Thessalonian church had received initial instructions and teaching with regard to how to live a sanctified life, how to live a justified life in Christ, and how to love one another. And Paul was simply reminding the Thessalonians in verse 1 that they should continue to do so, to increase daily in that love and in that sanctification as they walked in Christ and as they encouraged one another in Christ. Verse 2, 
For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, For this is God's will, that you become holy, that you keep away from sexual immorality. Now in verse 3, Paul is beginning to get specific with regard to his concerns as to what the Thessalonians needed to be wary of. The Thessalonian church is historically that area, swam in a culture that had given themselves over to sexual immorality, including fornication, which includes sexual activity outside marriage, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, and pornographic erotica. Paul was writing from Corinth to Thessalonica, and both cities were famed for their immorality. In Corinth you had Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex and beauty, which the Romans identified with Venus and sent out her servants as prostitutes to roam the streets by night. And Thessalonica, on the other hand, was particularly associated with the worship of deities called the Kabiri, in whose rites gross immorality was promoted under the name of religion. So these issues being rampant in Thessalonica, Paul was reminding them that they needed to daily stay away from these things which would entrench them in paganistic beliefs and in cultic beliefs and in things which would cause them to fall into condemnation and reproach with God. In verse 4, Paul says that each of you know how to possess his own body in holiness and honor. Now, at first glance, the phrase possess his own body seems to infer that the Thessalonians should uh, exercise self-control with regard to their bodily appetites and what they did with their body. And in a general sense, this is true. However, as we look at the original language, we see that the word translated possess in Greek, taimai, means to marry a wife. The word body in Greek, skios, means vessel, an implement, to be used specifically in the context of properly ordained sexual intimacy between a man and a woman in their marriage relationship. So, put a little bit more bluntly, this idea of possessing one's own body was an ordained and sanctified use of the body and method versus a prohibited and immoral use and method of using one's body. Now, just to digress, when we're talking about vessels or a, one's body, one would think of Romans 9, chapter 20 through 23, which says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel, that's skios, the same word, unto honor, and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath 
and to make his power known, endured with much suffering the vessels, again, skios, of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he make my, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels, skios, of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. So here, in Romans 9, 20 through 23, clearly skios goes far beyond simply the physical body. The physical body is simply the shell. But what he's talking about is your whole person, your body, soul, and spirit, which resides in the flesh and in your body. And how you use that with regard to whether it be something unto honor or something unto dishonor is how you use your whole person. The two cannot be divided to say, I'll use my body, but I will with my mind or with my spirit honor God while my body is dishonoring. The two are one and the same. So when you dishonor your body, you dishonor your spirit. The subject is well worth looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is a passage of full mention with regard to marriage versus fornication, which we won't further go into at this point, but I would highly recommend the listener to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in your own devotional time to get a better idea of what Paul is referring to. In any case, Historically and culturally, the word vessel is associated with the practice and the use of a vessel to contain various materials, gifts, or substances which some religious devotees would carry using the vessel to sacrifice, worship, or offer to a god. So this again goes back to uh, the theory already proposed with regard to Romans chapter 9, verses 20 through 23, in that our whole person is something that we use to either honor or to dishonor God. Paraphrase, we might say that everyone understands sexual intimacy between a man and a woman will maintain sanctification and honor. Conversely, any sexual intimacy outside marriage between a man and a woman is against God's will, purpose, and design, and is at the end of the day sin. Verse 5, Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Paul is comparing and contrasting here as to how one would use your vessel. In this case, lustful passion, in the Greek, epithemia, is a desire, a craving, a longing, a desire for what is forbidden, lust. Verse 6, that no one go beyond and overstep the proper limits in the matter with his brother, because an avenger is the Lord of all these things, as also we spake before to you and testified. The King James Version reads, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. This begs an important question. 
The question being, do our souls, spirits, bodies belong to us, or do they belong to God? Now, there's two answers to this. A, we'll take the world's answer. And the world's answer would say, we can do what is right in our own eyes as long as we don't get caught, or it's not against the law, at least currently. Uh, how about what two adults consent to do in privacy is nobody's business? Uh, how about if you have always wanted to, you were quote-unquote born that way, then it's okay. Or how about quote-unquote loving someone can never be wrong? If not, how about if 50% say it's okay or it's been authorized by the court system, it's okay. Or finally, if the medical profession, psychology and psychiatry say it's okay, then it's okay. You see, each and every one of the above have one thing in common. They're approved of and understood by the world to be okay. Then we have another answer. In this case, God. Under this uh, premise, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20, quote, Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What, know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Next, we understand, too, that the believer's body, soul, and spirit are God's property. Our bodies, soul, and spirit are his members, wedded as the bride of Christ. Thirdly, a sincere, faithful bride cannot be a submissive, obedient bride of Christ and at the same time submit our body, soul, or spirit in disobedience to anybody anyone or anything other than Christ. Finally, any behavior, thought, or deed which does not glorify God in obedience to his revealed word will, by default, bring disrepute to God and the church and or will prove that you do not truly know God. Lastly, in this area, we should talk about the phrase defrauding his brother, quote-unquote.
This is a euphemism which could be used in either sense. It could mean to defraud my brother or to defraud my sister. Either way, when and if we engage in sexual immorality, sexual activity outside marriage, i.e. adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, and or pornographic erotica, or anything outside the creation ordinance of marriage between one man and one woman, you are not engaging in a quote-unquote victimless crime. You are embezzling from God. You ask, well, what does embezzling mean? Embezzlement means that you have a fiduciary relationship with someone, as in most cases with an employer. If you are an employee and you have an employer, you have a fiduciary relationship with your employer, especially if you are entrusted with some kind of money or some kind of merchandise that is uh, you are expected to take care of if you use it inappropriately if you steal it you're embezzling it because it does not belong to you it belongs to your employer it's just so with regard to the biblical understanding of defrauding one's brother your own body does not belong to you it belongs to God you have a fiduciary relationship with God and if you use your body inappropriately or you steal from God what does not belong to you you are embezzling so in this case you are committing a crime because your body and the body of the other person with which you might engage in these any one of these activities ultimately both bodies belong to God this is very different from the world's perspective where everybody's body belongs to themselves unilaterally and only we can ultimately say and give permission with what we do with our bodies. So even in the case that the second party involved is a non-believer, it is possible that God might at some point choose in his sovereign will to save that person and for that person to become a believer at which point when they do so they will now have to face the fact that that sin they committed with you was a sin that had to be placed on Christ on the cross for which they are now forgiven and for which they might now have to struggle Therefore, we always have to remember that sin is an affront to God, and we need to be sensitive to that. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Oh, the world.